Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Welcome back, my friends, to the Story Box. Have I got a great story for you guys today? My guest is a writer, a director. He's also an actor too. And for those of you that would know the film Stronger, he was also the one that wrote that film. His name is John Polono. And even more so, John has a brand new film out, which is a mind bending great film uh, that I was immersed in. There is a wicked, uh, wicked uh, ending, I have to say, but you must go and watch this film. It is called Small Engine Repair. It's a pitch black comedy with a wicked twist, as I said, and a powerful exploration of brotherhood, class struggle, and toxic masculinity. He stars opposite John Bernthal, which for those of you that don't know who he is, he played Frank Castle in the series The Punisher. He's been in The Walking Dead. He's been in King Richard, Baby Driver, The Accountant, Fury, and The Wolf of Wall Street, to name a few. But John uh, Polono is an incredible writer. He's an incredible director. He uh, has a couple of films that are that he's working on at the moment, uh, an untitled Hulk Hogan biopic for Netflix with director Todd Phillips and Chris Hemsworth starring. Uh, he's also writing, writing an Evil Knievel biopic in development with Sony uh, with Richard Linklater, all great directors, by the way, and actors, and is set to star get this, Matthew McConaughey, who, as you guys know, is an alumni of the Storybox. So all very, very exciting projects coming up. But this is a conversation I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy. Uh, John Polono has not really the kind of career that uh, a lot of stars actually have. He's had to work incredibly hard to get to where he is today. We do talk about the process of writing, uh, his struggles uh, getting to where he is today, Small Engine Repair 2, which is a great film. Highly encourage you guys to go and check it out. It's mind-bending, like I said, uh, but it's very, very intriguing and it touches all these uh, themes and topics that we need to be really diving more into these days, especially with toxic masculinity. So if you do get something from this, please share it around to your friends and family. Don't forget before you go to leave a rating and review over on other podcasts. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show as well. And you can also join the Storybox uh, email list, which is available on the website. All links are in the show notes below too. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the Storybox as we listen, learn and grow from the incredible wisdom, the advice and the story of none other than John Polono. I'm glad to be there. I'm glad to be on it, man. You know, I love Australia. I've been there. I feel real deep connections to Australia. One of my good buddies who originated the play, Josh Hellman, who's an Australian actor, uh, who's very, very dear to me, um, is there right now. During the pandemic, he moved back. So is, he, uh, is he in Sydney, Melbourne? Where is he? He's kind of where he grew up with, I think, is Western Australia. 
Oh, okay. So I, I've been to uh, yeah. I've been to Auckland, Sydney, and and uh, Melbourne, but I've never been where he's from. Right. So can you say without a shadow of a doubt that you love Sydney more than Melbourne? Would you, would you want me to say that? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll own you because I'm from Sydney, so we got this okay. little rivalry Melbourne between Sydney. But anyway, it's just. Well, I mean, I think they ha- they both have their pluses and minuses, um, but not minuses. They both had their distinct sort of character. But I did go sit, uh, swim uh, surfing at Bondi Beach, which definitely might be a legendary me. Bondi. Yeah, can't go wrong with Bondi, to be honest with you. But you know, John, I I really do appreciate your time, and it's good course, to hear man. that you are a fan of Australia and you have deep roots there, I guess you could say. My very first question for you that I love starting off all my conversations with, it's more, it's one of my favorite questions and I'm curious to hear your response to it. What does success look like to you? Wow, that's a very deep question. Um, You know, success primarily for me was being able to support my family doing, you know, what what I wanted to do. Uh, like a passion, like a calling. That was, I think, the most important uh, metric for me. And then followed by, you know, again, being able to support my family doing things that I felt were artistically fulfilling. Mm. When was the moment for you that you realized that this was, in fact, success for you? Has it been this gradual thing over time for you? Was there more of a catalyst moment somewhere in your life? Well, uh, so it's two things. If I want to talk about creative success, it was probably, one, you know, I, I, I wrote a bunch of terrible screenplays and then I started to take a deep dive into acting. I went to a conservatory, started to study plays, and then I was a play, just only a playwright for almost a decade before I sold a screenplay. And some moments, either seeing my work on stage or acting in the work on my stage, doing that, having sort of those moments of discovering my voice, you know, and having that connection with an audience and knowing how to communicate with them and tell stories that were from my heart. And, you know, sometimes disturbed them, but thought provoked, made them laugh, made them feel something. I think that's it. When I, when I first found that the words in my head were then making people feel something on stage, that was the big creative moment where I said, okay, this is, this is it. I've, I've found it. I found my voice. I found what, what I want to do. And then, you know, it, it took many years, but eventually, uh, you know, I, stronger was sort of my big, you know, small under repair and the success of the play kicked a lot of doors open. That was, that started to happen at a time where, you know, the studios would look at a play. I, I was sort of at the beginning of that trend where people, they would look at a, a piece of theater, like a play as a writing sample. And it's very cinematic and dialogue. And they felt, okay, what is that? So I started to then, get material that seemed to echo that a little bit. And then once you start writing screenplays, then you just started to do it. And I I was always like at the beginning, I'm like, I don't know how long this is going to last. Like, you know, when you're working class, you're living paycheck to paycheck and and you still just do it. I mean, you know, it's, it's a balance, but uh, you know, it's only been the last, I don't know, three or four years that I've been able to breathe a little bit and even still, you know, and then like the pandemic hits and, you know, you do something like small engine repair, which is not, a, you don't do that for the money. You do that for the artistic thing. And, and hopefully people connect and it moves the needle and you get to be in the driver's seat and see it. But for me, all of those choices, you know, even a small engine repair, never got a distributor or whatever, it just was, I know I learned so much of that. And I bring those lessons to me on the next thing and the next thing. And you have to constantly sort of evolve, but ideally, you know, you can, you can, have a bigger canvas and, and support your family and keep doing stuff. Mm, I want to get to small engine repair in just a moment because it is a sure. film you've, you've written. I believe like there are, are those films that sort of keep you engaged for the entire film. Like you just want to sit there and until what's next, you know, you, you keep guessing and even like you don't expect things to actually transpire. You're like one minute you're laughing, the next minute you're like, what the hell? <laughs> and it's kind of it's kind of like that. But then the there's I guess people just gotta go and watch it. And, and I'm curious to hear the story about how you created that movie. But sure. you mentioned that you know you had you wrote a couple of screenplays, it didn't really go anywhere. Did you always want to be a writer, director, or even actor? Uh, well, in the order, so initially it was, I didn't grow up in an area that had any 
remotely remote access to anyone who was making a living in a creative career. So I, you know, closest I had to that was my idol growing up was Stephen King. And I just devoured his books and I liked writing short stories. And what I liked about Stephen King was that his stories kind of hooked into you. They felt your heart, but there was also that tension and the horror element, but they kind of, they, they kind of fucked with, I'm sorry, is it all right that I use that? Word in your, so they kind of fuck with the, with the reader and have them in the grips. And I, I just, I really like that. And that's kind of how my mind functioned, that little bit of like devilish quality to it. But, and, but feeling it. So I started to write, you know, short stories. I dabbled a lot in the horror genre for that reason. And then um, I went to uh, University of New Hampshire. Um, that's just all I could afford. You know, I really wanted to go to NYU or USC. I just couldn't afford it. And then I saved enough money doing, you know, odd jobs over the years to go to NYU for a summer course. So they take, I think it's like two semesters worth of filmmaking and it's compressed into a eight week thing where you go every day and you make films. And in that, I don't know if what they do now, if they don't shoot digitally, but back then it was all, you know, it was reversal film. So you got it developed and you had it and you edited it and you did it. And that was like blew my mind. And, you know, I was always wanted to be a director because in my experience, sort of growing up in this sort of town, incredibly far away from Hollywood with the movies that I loved, I, prescribed to the director. Oh, that's Martin Scorsese. You know, as you get now, I realize, you know, there's a lot of hats and, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I love directing, but I, I mean, I love writing too. And I love acting, but it was, that was directing. Cause I was like, Oh, they wear the hat. They do that. That's their vision. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved to LA, I had, you know, no, look, it's one of the directing is one of those occupations, at least in my experience, initially that you needed to have a lot of money as a cushion to support yourself yeah. to fund a film and the people I knew who were pursuing that to a real degree just came from money that I could not fathom, quite frankly, you know, growing up and, and just having to pay the bills and, and having to, you know, fall behind and have the electricity turn off and just have like the, the stress of that. A lot of that was self-imposed because I kept doing, you know, odd jobs and not really fully committing to a career because I'm writing and doing all this other stuff for, you know, a decade, decades. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then writing, you don't require writing. You, no one needs to give you permission. You don't need any money. You just buy, you know, computer or whatever, or you can write on a notebook. I mean, you can do it. And so I just did that. But my, the screenplays I wrote initially were uh, not good because they were basically derivative of other movies. They weren't, you know, they were slight new paint on movies that I loved, you know? And, it was not. And then I moved to L.A. after living in Colorado and New York City and just writing a bunch of shit. I moved to L.A. and, and I got a job at Castle Rock Entertainment in the mailroom. And like the second day I met this guy, uh, Phil Santani, who uh, I'm still friends with. And he I, I owe him maybe more than any other person because he was taking an acting class at this conservatory and he told me about it. And I went and like audited a class and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I had acted in short films and stuff, but. I started taking this class and I felt so foolish about it. I felt like such a, um, I was afraid to admit that I was an artist, I guess, to some extent, you know, it was hidden. So I couldn't fail because I just didn't know what that looked like. Uh, um, you know, you, anyway, it's a complicated thing. You, do you think yeah. you're more afraid to actually succeed because you hadn't really achieved it yet? Or were you more afraid of failure? I wasn't afraid of failure. I was afraid of being a joke and not, you know, and not, I didn't have a cushion. I mean, my parents were, you know, so far removed from that world and, you know, supportive, but like, I couldn't call and say, Hey, can you pay rent for the next six months or what? You know, I just didn't have that. You know, they, that's not where I came from. That's not the financial reality. You know what I mean? The fact that I packed all my shit in a U-Haul and moved across country with two dogs and a, and a, a girl who, uh, you know, ended up breaking up, but you know, that was them. They're like, you've made it. You're, you're leaving the town. You're, you know, you've got a job, you've got a job in the mail at Castle Rock. Like your dreams are coming true. You know, the that's, they just kind of didn't get it. So I took this acting class and you study theater, you read plays, you don't read uh, screenplays. You don't do like a scene from Sopranos or whatever, you know, you do plays. And I started to read these playwrights and I had been, I think, to one play in my life. 
in Peterborough, New Hampshire, I saw like the production of Dracula and it was, it was really good, but it was like, I remember being embarrassed in the theater because I was so uncomfortable with my own skin in terms of admitting I was artistic that I saw these actors really going for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's such a key to acting is to be, to not judge and just be fearless. And I, I had trouble with that. So this acting class really chipped away at that. And re- again, reading these plays and reading this type of writing that was so provocative and deep and, 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 and not just to entertain, but to really do all that. So I started to, you know, do the acting and I, I felt like I had a knack for it. It really connected. One thing I felt acting really worked for me was like, you are the sum total of all the decisions you made, all the pain, all the ups and downs, complications. And the whole thing is, is like, you know, like Jay, you're going to play this character. No one can play it the way you're going to play it. You tap into all your stuff. Nobody can do that. You may not be right. You may not have the technique. You may not, whatever, but no one can do the things you do. So it's about being present and saying, oh, that's it. So, you know, look, wow, this is, you always get so deep with your guests. I don't know, man. (laughs) I do. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. When I, when I, uh, I remember being, uh, quite young and seeing boys in the hood by John Singleton and it blew me away. And I just remember thinking, Jesus, like what business do I have making a movie? I I didn't grow up in South central. I didn't have a friend die in a drive by. Like I've never had that level of drama in my life. And then, you know, getting into theater, realizing that, you know, I think the first play, the first play I did in class was death of a salesman. And it's Mm -hmm. just this monumental achievement from in a very specific, intimate portrayal of a family. And I said, well, you know, I know family, I know this. So taking a deeper dive into it, I finally found my own voice and, and, and wrote, you know, at the time I was going to therapy with this girl and, and she, uh, we ended up breaking up and it was really, really hard. And I had a hard time in therapy. So I sort of wrote a one act play. The first thing I ever wrote was like a brother and sister at their father's, uh, it was a one act play, it was one scene. I don't know how they do it there, but in New England, it's like, if it's the winter, you go to a funeral or anything, you just have a room where everyone throws their coats on a, on a, on a bed. So it was in this bedroom and there were coats all over the bed and the the brothers in there looking, and he's kind of like a tightly wound, kind of similar to the character, Frank, but not quite. And he's looking for something the aunt asked him to get in the book and his sister who lives in California now and is like kind of, you know, a hippie with his kid and like left town. She goes to find him and they have this, really in-depth conversation trying to crack into each other. Um, and it was very deep in it. And by the end, there was a, a, a step towards understanding. And she was trying to get him to therapy and all that stuff. It was a very, very small event happened in it, but it was super truthful, very funny, very raw. And I felt it was tapping into the things I was feeling, which is like this like roughneck New England aesthetic coming into California and this sort of like hippy dippy beautiful, but also kind of partially fake thing. And I just kind of, I was like, this is all the stuff I'm feeling. And I, and I put it in this one act play and it was great. And I did it in class a bunch of times. And then some other people in the class were like, Hey, write me a monologue. We do this. And I just started doing it. So you do that. And then, you know, it got to the point people didn't even know what was the, you know, the published play and what was mine because I was having an act for it. And, and, and I also sort of got to like, Oh, I know that actor. I know their strengths because I've been going there for so long and, and then we started a theater company and that's actually where I met my wife was in that class who we're still married 17 years now. And we started a theater company and we produced a bunch of my one act plays and then some other ones. And then, you know, got my first audiences and getting that feedback and just kept doing it and doing it and write plays and, and kept going. And then, you know, small engine repair was, uh, you know, definitely not my first play, but that, that was the most successful one I had written and it sort of started to open doors. And then I could take those things, those lessons. And I, you know, I still write plays and then use that in, in, in movies. And my first sort of hitting it, hitting the ball with the fat part of the bat was stronger, which was most of my plays had like a new England working class aesthetic, which is something I felt very comfortable with. And I felt like, again, to your point before, instead of writing my Indiana Jones clone or my, my version of, you know, Chinatown. It was like these working class New England stories. And I just knew those voices and it was very authentic to me. And I could explore, you know, be really specific in that milieu and then make it very sort of universal. But small engine repair was the next evolution in that, in which I took that aesthetic and that authenticity and added 
some very provocative themes and made it visceral and added the thriller to it, made it genre. And it just really connected with people and, and really took off. I can, um, I appreciate you sharing all that. Of course. I, that, I, was a, that was a deep conversation, Jay. No, I love the, I love the deep stuff because that just shows you, right? It shows your heart shows where you're at. You shows it shows where you've come from. And I can relate to a little bit of what you said, because, you know, being in the arts itself is a difficult place to be in for a lot of people. And, and, you know, uh, I wanted to be a filmmaker growing up and I, I didn't think that any of the screenplays that I wrote or any of the movies that I, I made were any good. So I think it's, and I didn't think that I was quite going to ever make it. So I was very, very much worried about, what people were going to think of me in particular for making this particular movie. Right. So it, it became one of those areas where I just needed to detach myself from this, the art itself and just be as vulnerable as I possibly could, because that's what I, I believe that's where the best artwork comes from. To be honest with you is when you just put yourself out there and you just, do you <laughs> is right. what I've discovered, you know? So, um, yeah, I appreciate you, you sharing that, but what, what kept you going during those difficult and those tough moments? Well, so, you know, look, I kind of did it and I was single and I was having a great time, but I was spending more effort trying to get laid than anything else <laughs> for years and had some great, you know, Girlfriends have this and that, just having fun, just sort of living it up in LA. And then when I got serious with the uh, the theater company, and in particular with my wife, my girlfriend at the time, she was sort of that branch I needed extended to me, which was, you know, you're really good at this. Um, let's do this. You know, she had been acting for a long time. And she, even though she was quite a bit younger than me, she was like, someone who kind of validated it a little bit at that key moment when you need it. And then, you know, we got pregnant real quick and then I had a daughter and that suddenly was like the scariest, but the best thing that ever happened to me. And it was like, you have to figure out a way like shit or get off the pot, like really commodify this or make it, take it serious. Or not that I wasn't taking it serious, but I was like, living different lives. You know, I had my day job and then I had that and it was like, okay, how I, I, you know, I can, I'll always write. It'll always be part of who I am, but if I really want to provide for my family and do it. So then I just started to go like another level. And, you know, I was working even when I, when I got stronger, I had a couple of jobs. I mean, I was working a bunch of stuff, you know, to pay the bills. My wife was doing this, I was doing this. And then the baby came and my wife's taking care of the baby. Cause you know, it's rubbed when you don't have enough money to hire somebody to take care of the kids. So your dog, like my, she stayed home and took care of the kids because if she goes and makes money doing something, it's just going to basically pay for the thing. So a lot of people have that issue in LA and everywhere I'm sure. And then, so I, you know, and then I just kept doing it and then uh, you know, juggling and then stuff started to click. And I just would work my ass off on any given thing that it was. And it's still, you know, it starts to build and to build. And then, you know, I, I'm living, doing a lot of really cool screenplays and a, like a really good writing assignment, sometimes rewrites and stuff like working as a, a working in-demand screenwriter. And then again, I, I felt that itch of, you know, small engine repair was something artistically I want to take a shot at and I got to do it now. I'm not getting any younger and, I want to move the needle of the career and see what happens. So, you know, we went all in and, you know, John Bernthal was, in, was probably this, this sort of second part of the equation. Cause when I met him doing the play in 2011, he was like my wife, like someone who I'd met who was like, I mean, that dude was like, dude, we can do this. And he's like, you can do this. Like he's just one of those friends who makes you feel like you can do anything. Like he has that energy about him. And that's very, uh, you know, it was, it was a beautiful thing. And so I've been very lucky in having those different people. And, you know, I, I have 
just built a community theater. The best thing theater did is give me a community of support and like the, the people I talk to every day. I mean, I just got off the phone as this was starting with one of my best friends is a writer, Kemp Powers. And he wrote mm-hmm. he had a great year last year. You know, he did, he did one out of Miami, the play a year after small and repair at our theater company. And he and I have worked on stuff together. And then he had this crazy year and, you know, we just had a screening of small engine repair on Friday and he was there and it was just like, Hey bro, we did it. You know, like, can you believe we're doing this? And, and uh, you know, you just surround yourself with people like that. Mm. You know, I think not to zig and zag, but a lot of times when you have younger filmmakers or writers, they're like, well, how do you, what do I do? Do you have advice? And the best advice that I can give is it's your peers that you need to focus on. It's not finding that, person to to discover you and give you permission uh the way this industry works is like once you're firing all cylinders they're like oh can you do that over here um it's your peers and then you guys all help each other and then you know then you're making shit with each other you're making connections you're making calls you're giving advice you know what i mean it's not uh it's just a different thing i think a lot of people maybe lose sight of that sometimes yeah because when all the stuff is gone at the end of the day all the stuff that you've created what's left it's you and and the people that you are hopefully still friends with you know relationships are the most important aspects of life to be honest that's what i've realized with doing this it's more about who you know than what you know half the time and yeah it it brings me more fulfillment when uh, you know i'm being in service to a friend of mine than i am being in service to myself just to get myself ahead if that makes sense you know like I want to help as many people as I can and, you know, just be real and and be authentically me, but do the things that I love to do. I think I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here, but. No, 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 you're right, man. I, I got to say that, you know, it, it's a great character trait. I mean, I would say the health, the healthiest, most successful people that I know that I work with are very happy for other people's success. Yeah. They enjoy other people's success almost as much as their own. They're really happy. They're not bitter. They're not negative about that. And I mean, that's not easy to do. That's like, sometimes it's a choice you make, you know, and it's hard, you know, even look, this releasing a film during COVID, it's a fucking roller coaster, man. And it's sometimes hard to not feel a little sorry for yourself to be like, oh, what if, what if we, you know, I, I really wanted that festival experience. I wanted to travel a year with the film going to festivals, talking to people about it. And, you know, we couldn't do that with the pandemic, but I mean, by the way, there's people suffering infinitely worse, but you have that feeling. And then you have a good friend who's like, listen, man, you made a movie and you made the movie you wanted to, everything else is bonus. And you only get that with somebody who's like content and healthy and like, you know what I mean? Doing what the, and, and, and I mean, I guess that's what I think I, I try, I'm trying to aspire to be. Mm, absolutely man and and for something like small engine repair and talking about the writing process as a whole being creative that sort of thing how do we or how do you know that it's the right time for it to actually get made and how do you know that it's actually finished oh <laughs> i mean i you know I, you know it's finished when you run out of money and you have a deadline but um <laughs> So, you know, look, the, the movie just on, on the paper, uh, I mean, the, the play is, is it's not that it's even that it's overtly cinematic, but it has certain things that are make it very conducive to, to an independent film, which is primarily one location, a small cast, very clear stakes that are ratcheting up throughout tension. You know, a lot of plays, I think, have difficulty transitioning from stage to screen because they're very maybe intellectual or they're, they're deeply thematic, but not necessarily, you know, viscerally uh, tense, you know? And then, um, so we had that, I was leaning into that. And then the technology changed from 2011 to, to present day, but the themes just get more and more relevant. Um, and then when schedules lined up and the money lined up and everything, it, you know, I updated it. Um, I think in particular for me, it was the Me Too movement that was very much, I think this, the play was sort of, you know, before, uh, before Me Too, but it was having a conversation about things that ended up being prominently spoken about in the Me Too. Like, so it was kind of like this stuff just came out. So then it was like, oh, okay, now's a great opportunity to contribute to that. And 
you know, hopefully be thought provoking and, and, but, but fun and visceral and smart, but now maybe the viewers and audience is ready to have a more challenging conversation about these things and not in a didactic preachy way. I mean, one of the strengths of the material I always felt was, you know, it operates on multiple levels. So you couldn't, maybe that theme didn't make sense to you at all. You didn't even see it, but you can still follow the story. But if you re, if you look at it and chip it away, you hopefully see that there's a there's a design under there that's really trying to to say something deeper. And it felt like those themes were more relevant now than than ever. So that that made it feel like, yeah, it has to happen now. Mm. Yeah. One of the characters that you actually play, Frank, it kind of feels to me when I was watching it kind of feels like he has had a pretty hard life growing up, kind of feels like he has these inner demons that he's got to work through, but then he's got his, his mates around him that mm-hmm. they're all together. They're all helping one another. And when they're not together, you're kind of like miserable. But then when you bring right. each other together, even though you have those times of arguing and like there's these uh, comedic moments and then these, those tension moments, it kind of just like, it all, it all, it just works to be honest. But I'm curious, like how, how did you go about creating a character like Frank? And, and do you resonate with Frank a lot? Um, I mean, I can, you know, look, I think every character you write, you chip off facets of yourself, all of those characters. I, I, I feel like you can put yourself in them. I mean, that's just the nature of writing. Um, those three characters are really one character and they're sort of divided into things like, you know, they all exist sort of orbiting each other. So if this one goes here, that one has to go there. So it's really was an interest, you know, it's like a, an exercise in the unity of opposites to some extent with them all orbiting around a certain facet of male behavior in regards to, to women. And, you know, having um, my daughter was the, no pun intended, the engine behind the emotion of it and the what if scenario of it and, and all that stuff, that, that emotion you have when you have a child, especially a daughter. And when you're a guy and you're aware of sort of the world that she's entering, even, this, even though the landscape of that is changing, it's, it's, you know, it's very, uh, it's very potent stuff. And then, you know, and then it's just creating characters that were so fleshed out. And look, the Small Under Repair as a play initially was, you know, an exercise. It was like, a, I mean, I had no idea I'd make a movie out of it. I had no idea it'd be the hit it was. I just kind of let those characters run with it. And I, and I let them, I let the inmates run the asylum to some extent when, as the writing commenced. The ending I thought that was going to be in the play changed drastically as I was writing it. And I realized, well, wow, this is more what they're kind of telling me what it is. And, you know, the, the cohesion of the piece and, and the conflict and everything, what it was really about. So that was that that's how that play. I mean, I've written a lot of plays. That's how that one particularly came about. But I mean, I always try to start from character and situation and then therefore have the situations amplify those character traits. And, you know, if you made. Uh, yeah. You just so these are maybe not the. <laughs> They have these guys are are very flawed characters, and then when you give them a very very difficult situation, that I think anyone would say, "Oh shit, what I what would I do?" Maybe they do the same thing. Maybe they wouldn't. I, I don't know. But you want to create a plausibility in that, and and then look because of the exper- experimental, almost provocative nature of theater, especially late night theater where this originated, it was very much trying to have a story that seemed like it was one thing and then literally, you know, actually have the camera turn and face the audience at the end so yep. that your reaction, whatever it is on this visceral primal level, maybe you're walking out the theater and you should talk about it. And what is that saying? What is the intent of the piece? So I, I, I want to do that. And look, that's kind of experimental. It really resonated. And certainly doing that a movie is very, you know, that's why we didn't make a $10 million movie. That's why we made an independent movie so that it could really, do that. And, and you know, some people get offended. Some people get it. And it, but if it connects with you, it knocks you out of the park and knocks you out of your socks. And the only way you can do that is if you take a really big swing and take a chance, um, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I love movies that make you think all the way through and man, did this movie make me think, and I'm not just saying that like to boost your ego, but it, it, it really did make me think there are a lot of themes in there that I, I sort of started questioning. I mean, even the Red Sox uh, story, 
I mean, the, the fathers, I mean, that was, that was heavy hitting because, you know, like nowadays you wouldn't, like as a young kid growing up, you hope that you wouldn't experience that sort of abuse from your own father. Right. And I don't want to spoil too much for my audience. They've got to actually go and watch the film, but, um, it was just like bringing out a lot of emotions for me, like watching it. And I wanted to actually speak to someone about <laughs> the film after I finished watching it. But I was like, Hey, I'm speaking with a director and writer tomorrow. So why not? <laughs> yeah, why <laughs> I'll, hold, I'll hold off a little bit, but like, I'm, I've always been fascinated. Like how in the world does a movie like this actually get made? Like, did you face a lot of obstacles to actually get a movie like this made compared to a movie like Stronger? Well, Stronger was made at a studio. It's a significantly higher budget level. And I mean, I hate to say, I feel like the the movies like Stronger are getting rarer in this day and age to make, which is, yeah. you know, the, the whatever, $40 million uh, drama. Um, I mean, they are, but it's just, it's just not as often. Um, this is a different kind of thing. You know, it's, um, you know, like I said, I envisioned it more as like a provocative festival movie, but as I said, that landscape was hit pause, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there are a lot of ways to get movies to audiences now. I mean, we're in movie theaters right now, but, uh, sadly people just aren't going to movies. I don't know how it is in Australia, probably more. Nope. Yeah. Yeah, just lock <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, you have some of that, and then you know, it goes on demand and it gets out. And you know, I, I, the fear I have is that this is a movie that you have to actively watch. So many movies now are are made as sort of you know background noise, kind of pleasant. You know, you have them going on and you do other stuff. And I mean, you really just won't enjoy this movie unless you listen. Um, I, I think it doesn't pander to an audience. I think it's funny and gritty and raw. But you to really get the most out of it you kind of have to listen to it yeah you know? and i don't you know some for some people that's asking a lot sadly you know but uh but again we we knew we we're making an art piece of art that hopefully you know people will continue to find and 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 enjoy and uh and, and you know look I, again this this is a rare situation that the material is battle tested i i mean you know it more than once after the show i had someone come up to with me from say australia and i mean if, I swear to you, this actually happened. A woman went up to me and she was like, you know, there's small engine, there's a small engine repair shop or two in every town in the world. And she's like, that's just like my dad and his friends in Australia. He's got a shop. It's not a small engine shop. It's, it's, you know, it's a motorcycle shop, but they do this. It's the same thing. And I love that it made, because I think if you get really specific regionally or specific, it's very universal. Like the accents are different. Maybe the it's not the Red Sox, but it's like whatever team, you know, you grew up with or whatever. It's, it's, that's, what's fun about it. So I, I knew that would translate well. Mm. It, it did. And I really, really enjoyed it. And like I was saying to you before, I, I love those movies that make you think. And I really believe that because that those are the ones that I wanted to make growing up. I kind of got sick and tired of, yeah, the action movies. Yeah, they're good to an extent, but they're those those mind-numbing ones. I mean, they they let you think to like a, a surface level, but I want to go deeper. So I, I want I want those movies that you make that actually get to the core of certain topics and issues that you walk out of the cinema or, you know, for me, I was in my bedroom or in this room when I was watching it, the kind of that make you want to question your own understanding of the world and issues. And that's good. I believe that is, that is needful today. And I think that Hollywood has kind of got this model that kind of makes a lot of money and they're sticking to it. So why would we want to spend money on this if it's not going to make this amount of money? You know what I mean? Like it's just, and I think it kind of, there's, there's that, that fine line. Right. And I, I wanted, I wanted to always change that fine line. And I'm, I'm grateful for the people that actually get these movies made because it, I love them <laughs> and I hope they never stop. So I just want to say thank you for making a movie like this that I can think and enjoy at the same time. Well, I, yeah. Thank you, man, for, for getting the word out and, and, and being a connoisseur. And I, I look, I think, 
I mean, I don't know. I think we're in a weird moment, you know, who knows how things will land after, but you know, there, we're always going to be making movies and, you know, in me in art and theater and, and the, you know, theater is the oldest art form if you think about it yeah. and it's not going away. It just shifts and changes. And now there's some unbelievable storytelling on TV, you know, it's all out there, but uh, I think the movie industry is in a weird transitional place. So we'll see, mm-hmm. but you know, I hope, the industry will continue to make challenging, you know, lower budget movies that take a chance or are more thought provoking. I mean, those are the ones that stick with you. And, you know, I'm not going to shit on Marvel movies because I watch them, but not everything can be that. And I mean, I really enjoy them. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, sometimes you just want to try other things. And and not that I like, by the way, I don't think Marvel movies are saying we're the only game in town, but I think that that's, is the first time we've ever had such a dominant genre, the superhero genre that is, uh, you know, it's so, it's going to be so enticing, but you know, the budget on uh, Marvel movies, like 200 times what our movies, <laughs> you know, it's uh, so it's, you, it's just going to be different. Um, we just got to be, you know, making different kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, I don't want to, crap on Marvel movies either because I do watch them and I do enjoy some. Yeah, no, I mean, I do too. (laughs) But yeah, I enjoy these ones even more. So I guess that's what I was sort of alluding to that these ones, I mean, they don't require a great deal of money to make, to be honest, but they do require money. Uh, Well, I mean, that's, that's money you put on, you know, but when you talk about all, you know, what John Bernthal, Shea Wiggum, you know, all these people usually get for, to yeah. do something like this, they're, they're working for much less. And, you know, I am as well, especially as a writer. So, you know, they're, it's deceptive, but these passion projects people are doing because they love them and it's a great workout yeah. and, and it, you know, hopefully it moves the needle artistically, but uh, you know, and then you gotta pay the bills sometimes too. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. There's that, that also another area that you got to worry about, which is surviving in the world yeah. <laughs> while doing the thing that you love. Um, yeah. What, what was the, the hardest day for you on set? Do you remember? Well, okay. So there's a interesting, there were a couple of hard days, you know, when you're, when you're shooting a, a in, you know, the biggest, most expensive thing is just time. Yeah. So when you're out of time, so when you have time to do something and you want to make sure you get everything you need in an organic way, um, and then something goes wrong, whether a light doesn't work or, or a prop or a table or whatever can really slow things down. The, the, maybe the, one of the singular hardest moments, which actually ended up being a huge <laughs> gift, so to speak, which is the, the opening scene when, when Frank goes up to the repair shop, you know, it's sort of a flashback. It's starting 12 years before the movie kicks in. He's just gotten released from the clink. He's going up. He hasn't seen his daughter in a little bit. And we had all these, Matt Mitchell and I, the, the DP, we had all of this. Because, you know, especially when you're in it, you have to be very, yeah. pre-production is key. You have to know what everything's going to happen. And again, we didn't have the budget, nor was I interested in after every take, stopping it and watching it on playback. It was just like, let's just shoot it. Just get another take. Let's get two more takes and the time it would do that. Let's just trust it. Yeah. Keep going. And that's very much how this film was shot. It wasn't like, let's pause it. Let's do it. Oh, he blinked there. It was like, nope, let's just keep going. If you know, keep capturing, keep the actors limber, keep going. So that morning though, we did have like some really interesting, you know, there was no dialogue. It was some tracking shots of the things of the, as, as uh, John Bernthal and Shay cars pulls up, they get out, you know, Frank gets out. And if you look at the shop, you know, so many of the details, some of the hardest things are so thrown away. You're like, no one's even noticed, but the front of the shop, it's like sold, you know, it just bought it. The idea being is that he set it up. He's like, I'm going to buy the shop the day I get out of prison and I'm going to turn my life around. I'm never going to drink again. And I'm going to get everything good. You know? So supposed to be Dolly, this very lyrical as the little snow is falling and our, you know, credits were rolling and our music kicks in and we push in on these Dolly shots to him the, the, the friends come out with the girl, put her on the ground. There's a pause, negative space there. And she runs up and Frank holds her and is like, I'm never going to let you down again. It was like, it would be like more of a touching thing. And it was supposed to snow heavily at like, say, one o'clock. So we started shooting at 6 a.m. So we're at like 730 and the snow is fucking coming down harder and harder to the point where 
the dot, you can't use a dolly with that much snow. And then you have to start covering the equipment and doing that. So the little bit that we shot is unusable. And then we got one master take where the little girl in that scene was John Bernthal's daughter. Oh, wow. Addie. Yeah. Who I've known since she was born, but obviously she's about her dad. So we got one take where she runs up, but then take two it's snowing out. She's cold. Her shoe falls off, snot stripping down her nose. She doesn't want to leave her dad. She's cold. She's confused. Everything's going on. Everyone's stressed. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. So we just kept shooting it. So, you know, he went up and he's like, here, go to your daddy. And she's like, no, I don't want to go to him. She's heartbroken. She's crying. So we just kept rolling with it. We just worked it. He said, let's just see what we capture. And we just kind of did it. So it became a scene about a guy who's gone from prison, who came home and his own daughter doesn't recognize him. So whereas I had written a scene that's going to be like a heartwarming thing, and then we'll snuggle into the family for a couple of scenes and really get the dynamic of the three fathers. And then we get to that bar scene, which turns dark because like his violence comes back out. It became very, very dark from the beginning, very challenging. And it changed the tenor of the whole movie, quite mm-hmm. frankly. It made, it's it's more of a minor chord. So then we had to, that's what you had there and lean into it. And ultimately, I think it makes the movie in some ways harder to watch emotionally, but it makes it a lot uh, cut deeper. Mm. So that was the hardest day because it was like, I'm shooting stuff that I didn't plan on shooting. And I don't know if we got it. And then in the edit room, we, we made that sequence work. Mm. You throw the audience right into the emotion, which yeah. I loved <laughs> if I can say that. Um, but how long, how many days did you get to make this movie? I think I forgot. Um, it's like I'm putting it on my memory. It actually, we shot it in 2019, if you can believe it. Wow. Um, because of the, yeah, because I mean, we were done, you know, a year and a half ago. But pandemic hit the brakes. Uh, I think we had about four weeks. That's not long to no. <laughs> film an no. almost two hour long movie. That no, is. I mean, it's not, but again, primarily one location and we, we tore through it. You know, obviously yeah. you, you, the benefit again, you can't shoot many, you know, as you know, when you make a film is every time you move locations, it's like you lose half a day. Yeah. Get up time. So, so we're all there. So we shot the first almost three weeks in that shop. And then the last week was other stuff, you know, mm-hmm. pickups. And one day here, the bar day was very stressful with the fights. Cause we had, you know, all John Bernthal, uh, who is a producer uh, on the movie, as well as, you know, the lead actor was like, uh, called in all these favors. And, and our, our fight guy was the guy who does all the Marvel movies and he did Punisher huh. and stuff. So we had these incredible fight guys, but like, dude, we shot a lot in that bar. We had it one day, you know, shot the shit out of it. You that did. <laughs> Damn. I'm loving like all the backstory stuff behind yeah. this movie. I want people to go and and watch the movie. How can they go and do that, John? Um, I don't know how it's working in Australia, but I know we're we're in oct- early October. We'll start being on demand, and then I know there's an international thing, but like it's just been <laughs> it's been such a, a crazy couple of weeks. I have I I wish I could know. You know what? Maybe I'll find out and I'll email you. But uh, I know it's going to be releasing into the world after the U.S. So you know, mostly streaming in this day and age, people will be able to before it ends up on like a permanent streamer. It'll be like an on demand thing for a while. Again, I don't know. I mean, the paradigm is changing so much, Jay. You know that it's like it used to be that a movie ran for six months and then maybe, you know, that holiday it's out on demand. Now they're doing it much tighter windows because that's just the nature of things now. Yeah. I, I hope that people do actually get to go and watch this in the cinemas. Like when we here in Sydney, Australia, when we do eventually open back up, I want, that's my hope. Cause it would just yeah. be, it's kind of like one of those cinema movies, like those, especially the indie ones, you know, the small yeah. tight nip ones. Um, but yeah, definitely email me when it comes out and then I'll, I'll let my audience know where they can go and watch it. And I will. Cause you know, man, I get to see it. You know, I, I saw it in uh, L.A. on Friday, the great audience. And then I went to D.C. and watched it because John Bernthal's shooting out there. So I went and watched it with him um, and it was a full house and it was, uh, 
you know, cause we just told people, Hey, come check it out. And it was, it's, it's meant to be, you know, it's a, it's a roller coaster. It's, it's designed for a, for an audience. So, I mean, even if you watch it at home, you get a couple of, you know, buddies at least get a group of people because it's just fun. It's fun to see what people laugh at, you know what I mean? And, and what people applaud, like it's so different between LA and DC. DC was a very like street justice crowd. It was really fun. Mm. Well, can I <laughs> just, just like say, the play can I just say again, congratulations for creating this, this kind of movie. I mean, you should be very, very proud. I mean, I'm proud of you. I'm proud to uh, thanks, buddy. get to actually interview you and, and hear more about it. My, my final question for you, John, this is my sure. all time favorite question. I ask everyone at the end, I know that you are a filmmaker, so you, I think you're going to appreciate this question, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. Just call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Wow, that's a really good question. I mean, look, I think uh, to me the most important thing has always been... So here it is. It's sort of a two-part thing. I feel like the artistic side of me, the filmmaker side of me, it was necessary for me to express myself and really be who I feel like I'm meant to be. And that journey was necessary so that I could be all I can be to my wife, to my kids, to be, to be that. And, you know, I think honestly, it's the, it's the friends and the family I'm around that, I mean, that matters the most at the end of the day. And, you know, they don't love me any more or less because of that stuff. But um, I just don't, I feel most alive when I'm doing what I love. And it's really, really that simple. And that gives me the capacity to love everybody else even more. But I think, yeah, I think on that, just to, I just want to, you know, tell good stories. That's all I've ever wanted to do. And I feel like I've done that and I have a lot more to tell. But at the end of the day, it's really, you know, in the best, I, I'm, I'm at that point that when I, when something wonderful happens, I want to go hug my kids and my wife. When something scary happens, I want to go hug my wife and my kids. And I think that that's the way it should be. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I keep going back to that. It's a perfect send off message. John, thank you so much for your time, your creative artwork that you're putting out there in the world and great stories. You know, we need more people like you. Uh, so thank you to, for today and for joining me on the Storybox podcast. All right, Jay, have a good one, buddy. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.